morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? All right. It's sunny, sort of. It's been warm. That's a good week. Um, before we get into Matthew this morning, I wanted to share a little bit about my week last week. Some of you know we went, my family and I went to uh, Oregon last week, and uh, we're part, Revelation Church is part of a community of churches called CB Northwest. Um, we, um, when we started praying about planting this church. We didn't want to just go off and do something on our own. We wanted some accountability. We wanted some friendship. We wanted to walk arm in arm with other followers of Jesus. Uh, and God led us to this network of churches. And uh, so we went to their annual conference. And since we um, launched this church in September, uh, we were officially recognized as a member of the CB Northwest Covenant Community. And they gave me this paddle. It says, uh, welcome to the Covenant Community Revelation Church, CB Northwest. And the reason new churches in the community get a paddle is because the metaphor is we're all in the same boat. We're all going the same direction. We're all preaching the same gospel, and we all have the same mission to see people meet Jesus, and all of the churches in the community uh, have a part to play in that. And so it was a real honor to get uh, in front of about 400 church leaders from around the Northwest and talk a little bit about our community and be officially welcomed into the fold. So um, just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, We have a lot of people rooting for us and praying for us and and helping us walk as we kind of Establish what it means to be a church in, in Coeur d'Alene. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but turn in your Bibles to Matthew. We're going section by section through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've been with us for a while, um, we've been taking a look at Matthew's account of Jesus um, getting stuff done. If you remember, we talked about how Matthew is broken up into five sections. And each section starts with Jesus teaching, and then it's followed by Jesus doing. And we, we read through the Sermon on the Mount a while back, and that was a section of Jesus teaching. And then starting in chapter 8, we see Jesus doing. And the major thing that Matthew's trying to communicate to us in this section is Jesus has authority. We saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were blown away at his teaching because he didn't teach like the scribes. He taught with authority, like he actually knew what he was talking about. And then we started reading about how Jesus had authority over sickness. He could heal people. And then we saw that Jesus had authority over the weather. And the disciples went, who is this guy that could command the waves? And they cease. And then last week, we saw that he has authority over the demonic, over the spiritual world. And so today, we're going to continue looking at Jesus' authority And we're going to see that Jesus has authority over sin. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was with a group of guys in a a kind of learning environment that we're in. And we had an article to read. It was about how to um, disagree well with people who don't agree with you, how to to be charitable and how to be well-reasoned. And we were reading this article. And one of the first sentences in the article, I think I have it, Uh, John, you can put that up on the screen. The article said, it seems strange that one should desire to speak at all about polemic theology since we are now in an age when folks are more interested in ecumenism and irenics than in polemics. And it was interesting to see who was going to be the first person in the group to go like, I don't know what half of those words mean. 
<laughs> and thankfully, we all kind of came to the conclusion at the same time. We all pulled out our phones. Like, I, I could probably guess at some of them. I mean, there's definitely a few that I've seen before, but some of them I'm not really sure at all. And so we got our dictionaries out and we figured it out. But, but I, think, I think sometimes we do that with the Bible, we just read through and we like, some stuff makes sense and some stuff we think we know, some stuff we don't really understand, so we just skip over it. And so before we get into the text of Matthew, I want to talk a little bit about sin because the idea of sin, the word sin is all over the Bible. And if you've been a part of a church community for a while, you've probably heard it talked about over and over and over again. If you're reading the scripture, you see it talked about but I don't know that we always understand what it means. So sin in the Bible is, comes in two major categories. The first one is what we would call ritual imperfection. If you read, if you're going through the Bible in a year this year, we're in March, so you're somewhere around Leviticus if you're still going. Uh, or maybe you've stopped because you got to Leviticus and you can't do it anymore. But Leviticus is all about uncleanness. And it talks about sin as uncleanness. And sometimes people and objects are considered sinful or unclean just because they don't live up to the perfections of God. And sometimes that's not even their own fault. Um, it, you can become unclean by touching a dead animal. Uh, a woman becomes unclean when she has a baby and she has to ha offer a sin offering in that case. And that's not because having a baby is a bad thing. It's because... God is teaching his people in Leviticus that he is a different sort of being than humanity, and human humanity is less than God, and they have to make themselves clean in order to be in his presence. And so that's one idea of sin in the Bible. But the primary way that sin gets used is as moral impurity, moral failure. Uh, in, their, in their book called Doctrine, Driscoll and Brashears say a number of things about sin. They say sin breaks relational trust, sin damages social harmony, it betrays allegiance to God, it necessitates just punishment, it results in shame and defilement, both for the sinner and the one who sinned against. It infects the trajectory of future generations, and ultimately sin results in death. Sometimes sin is something you do. You steal or you lie or you murder. Sometimes sin is something you fail to do. You, you're stingy. You're not generous. You don't stand up for those in need. It can be an attitude. It can be something that happens inside of you or it can be an action out in the world. And the truth is, is Deep down, I think we all recognize that we find ourselves in this situation where we're just broken. I was reading an article uh, this week, and, and, and the writer was making the argument that sin isn't real. There's no such thing as that. Everybody's fine. If you, if you talk about deceitfulness or lust or envy or bitterness or, or um, any of these things that we would label sin, well, that's just the way human beings are built, and it's not a problem. But in your everyday experience, I don't think anybody really believes that because when somebody harms you, you recognize that's not right. That's unjust. When you look on the world and you see things happening, you go, that's not right. That's not the way it should be. And then ultimately, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we look at our own hearts and we go, there is something going on in me that is broken, that is crooked, that is sideways. 
And when the Bible talks about sin, it says that sin is ultimately an offense against God Himself. Because God made the world to work a certain way, and every time we go astray of that, every time we choose a different way, it's an offense to who He is and His goodness. Sin puts distance between God and us. Sin puts distance between each other. And sin ultimately leads to death. There's a story um, told about G.K. Chesterton, who's a British apologist, and he, um, he was asked by a newspaper, him and several other public finger, figures in England were asked by a newspaper to respond to the essay question, what's wrong with the world today? And all of these semi-famous people wrote an essay back to the paper talking about what was wrong with the world today. And Chesterton's won the award for the shortest response because Chesterton replied, Dear Sir, I am. And what he was getting at is that everything that we see out in the world, the war and the pestilence and the suffering and the military regime and the injustice and the racism and everything that we see out there ultimately comes back to what comes from in here. Individual people with crooked, broken, sinful hearts. And it's, this is a disease that's rampant in the world. And this was the case when Jesus was walking in Israel as well. And Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 says, So he got into a boat, Jesus, he crossed over and came to his own town. He's been in the country of the Gadarenes. Last week we talked about the episode that happened there with the demon-possessed men and the pigs. And that being over, he got in the boat with his disciples and he goes back to Capernaum where he kind of makes his uh, house, his home. Just then... Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And so Mark and Luke also talk about this story. And from their accounts, we know that Jesus is actually at home teaching at this time. And the the man on the stretcher is brought by his friends to the house And there's so many people there that they can't get in. And so if you're familiar with the story, they climb up on the roof. Most uh, Jewish homes were a single story with a flat roof and they had stairs on the outside. And so they come up on the roof and they dig through the ceiling and lower their friend on his stretcher to Jesus. And Jesus says he sees the faith that this man's friends have And he tells this man that his sins are forgiven. We live in a world that tends to um, create a pretty sharp distinction between the physical body and the spiritual life. We kind of believe that whatever I do with my body doesn't really affect my soul, and whatever I do with my soul doesn't really affect my body. But that's not what the people in Jesus' world believed. And and thankfully, I think more and more modern people are beginning to figure out that maybe that's more integrated than we thought. We don't know if this man's paralysis had something to do with his sin, but it's possible 
We see in places like Psalm 38, David crying out about his physical body because of the sin in his life. Uh, In John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus heals a man, another man of paralysis, and says, don't sin anymore so that this doesn't happen to you again. In James 5, 15, James says, if you're sick, call for the elders to pray for you, and anyone that's committed a sin will be healed. And so there's this this connection of the the spiritual illnesses that we often have can manifest themselves physically in our bodies. On the other hand, the entire book of Job is about how that's not always the case. Sometimes bad things happen physically through no fault of our own. And also in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus meets a blind man who was born that way. And the disciples say, who sinned to make this man born blind? And he said, well, nobody sinned. It's so that the glory of God could be presented in this man's life. And so we can't be dogmatic about how this works, but it's possible that in this, per, in this specific example that this man the way he lived his life and his physical condition might have been related. But even if that's the case, it seems pretty clear that this guy wants to be healed. These these men have heard that Jesus is the healer. He's been going around Galilee healing the sick, and they want some of that. So in verse 3, Matthew writes, at this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. So this is the introduction in Matthew's gospel of Jesus' major human enemy. This is the the group of people that want to make Jesus' life miserable, that want to take him down, that want to destroy his ministry. Scribes would be men probably in in the political party of the Pharisees that spend their day reading the law, studying the scriptures. They would have had high places in the synagogues and the churches of their day. They would have been well-respected. They would have known their Bibles well. And they're there. They're listening to Jesus speak. And as soon as Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, they start talking to themselves. And they say, he's a blasphemer. He's blaspheming. So what does blasphemy mean? Blasphemy in its purest sense is cursing God, is speaking directly against the person and character of God. And and in the scribe's mind, Jesus is a blasphemer because he's acting in a way that's making himself equal to God. He's forgiving sins. And they would have said, only God can forgive sins. And so if you say you can forgive sins, then you're saying you're God, and that's bringing shame on the name of God. And if we think about that from their perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Whatever this man has done to himself, whatever relationships he's broken, however his sin has damaged the world around him, He hasn't done anything to Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't even know this guy. If I go out and slash somebody's tires and Brian comes up and says, 
I forgive you. Well, if I didn't slash Brian's tires, he has no right to forgive me. That's silly. Like, I haven't wronged him. It doesn't make any sense. And this is, this is the lens that the scribes are working from. Jesus can't forgive sins because he hasn't been sinned against. God is sinned against. And he's claiming divinity. D.A. Carson writes about sin. He's, he talks about idolatry. He says, the heart of sin is idolatry itself. It is the de-godding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, if you do not see things my way, I'll make my own gods. I'll be my own god. Small wonder that the sin most frequently said to arouse God's wrath is not murder, say, or pillage, or any other horizontal barbarism, but idolatry, that which dethrones God. That is also why in every sin it is God who is, mo is the most offended party. As David himself well understood, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge, Psalm 51.4. So what Carson is saying is ultimately everything that we do that goes against the way God wants the world to work is a slap in the face to God. Even if we are harming one another in our sin, we are ultimately harming image bearers of God, men and women who are made in His image, created in a goodness by Him, and we are speaking and acting against God himself. So verse four, Jesus perceived their thoughts. Whether he did that supernaturally or he just looked over and saw them whispering to each other, we don't know. But Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So in order to prove that he's telling the truth, in order to prove that Jesus really can forgive sin, he heals the man physically. And he makes this point, he says, if I'm just going around, if I'm a charlatan, if I'm trying to lie to people, it's really easy for me to just go, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven. Because how do you really tell? That's something that happens on the inside. And, and if, if he wanted to make that claim, you couldn't really oppose it. But he says, so you know that my claim to forgive sins is real? I'm going to command this man to walk because that's a much harder thing to fake. And so he says, take up your bed and walk. And he does it. He gets up and he takes his stretcher and he goes home. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but notice what Jesus calls himself. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man, this is the title that Jesus uses for himself. If you recall from the last time we talked about this, nobody else calls Jesus the Son of Man. Paul doesn't, and Peter doesn't, and all the, throughout the epistles, they don't use that name for Jesus. They call him Christ. They call him the Son of God. They call him Savior and Redeemer, and all of those things are true. But Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and that comes from the book of Daniel in chapter 7, when 
Daniel sees a vision of God in heaven and a son of man comes up on the clouds and sits on a throne equal to God. So Jesus is very clearly claiming to be God. He's very clearly claiming to be equal with God by using this reference. And, and he's... <clears throat> And we know he's doing this because he's countering the objections of the scribe, right? The scribe is saying, you are a blasphemer because you're claiming to be God. And he's saying, no, I'm not because I am God. He's claiming divinity for himself. I, I read an, an, another piece this week by a, by a Muslim writer, and, and he was arguing that, that whenever Jesus calls himself the son of man, he just means people, people in general, but that doesn't make any sense. If, so you may know that people in general have authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is deliberately showing that he has the authority to forgive sins. He can do this thing. Jesus is constantly affirming, if we know how to look for it, that he is God, that he is holy and good and equal to God the Father. And this is why his enemies are so angry with him. So he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had, forgiven, who had given such authority to men. So the man, the man does what he's told. He gets up off his stretcher and he goes home. He's been healed. And the crowds are awestruck once again by Jesus because Jesus is acting in ways that they just do not understand. So I want to talk a little bit as we kind of round the corner here about what it means that Jesus has authority over sin. And to recap I've got another, another sin quote, but this is by Cornelius Plantinga. And he says, the Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. And so all throughout Scripture, we have this story of God creating a world, a perfect world, a good world, a beautiful world that sin has broken, that sin has damaged. And sin damages our relationship to God. It damages our relationship to one another. It damages our relationship to society as a whole. It even damages our relationship to the planet And I love in this quote, while well, he says, even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. We all live and breathe in this world filled with sin, and yet we all still know like something is wrong. 
But Jesus has authority over sin. Jesus has power over sin. Sometimes I think we get the impression that God uh, can't be in the same room with sinners. Or that looking at sin makes him ill, sick to his stomach. And there are, there are metaphors and pictures in the Bible that would lead us to believe that, but I think that's a misunderstanding of sin because it gives sin power over God that sin does not have. God is not scared of or allergic to sin. There's this, um, there's this scene in the first Avengers movie, if you're a fan of the Marvel movies, where um, Iron Man is having a conversation with the villain Loki. And they're in Iron Man's building, and Iron Man takes all his armor off, and so he's defenseless, and he goes behind the bar, and he makes himself a drink, and there's like some small talk. And, and, and Loki says, are you going to beg for your life? And he goes, no, I'm going to threaten you. And Loki kind of laughs, and, and they talk a little bit back and forth, and um, Loki finally says, I have an army. And uh, Iron Man goes, we have a Hulk. And throughout this exchange, Iron Man is fearless because he knows that he's going to win, that they're going to be victorious. Whatever happens, the villain will be defeated. Look at what Jesus says in verse 2 to the paralytic. Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. N.T. Wright in his commentary translates this, in a totally British way, cheer up, my lad, your sins are forgiven. And I have to believe that Jesus says this with a smile. Jesus is confident that he will defeat sin. He will conquer sin on the cross by taking it on himself and defeating it by his death and resurrection. And we, we are in this season of Lent, preparing our hearts for Easter. And if you look at the images we've hung around the auditorium, they're all dark. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is scourged. Jesus falls. Someone carries Jesus' cross. Jesus is stripped naked and nailed to the cross and ultimately killed. And all of these stations of the cross are dark. Because Jesus is taking on sin headlong. He's letting it do its worst. But he knows at the end of the day, he's going to come out on the other side of that victorious. He's going to win. And so he looks at this man and he says, Cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. And I think we need to know that. I think we need to feel that. That whatever terrible thing it is that we've done, whatever we're holding on to, whatever deep secret we think we have hidden away from God, 
Jesus is bigger than that. Jesus is more powerful than that. Jesus isn't afraid of that. Jesus isn't like hiding in the corner going, ew, yuck. He's taking that head on and he defeats it on his cross. And if you're in a place where you're afraid or you're ashamed or you don't know what to do about what's going on in your heart, in your life, in your relationships, take it to Jesus because Jesus is bigger and better and stronger than whatever dark sin you think you can't overcome. And Jesus can forgive you of your sin. And for the rest of us, that should, that should inform our hearts and our posture as well. We don't need to be afraid of sin. We don't need to shirk away from people that we think are sinners or wicked or, or dark. We have the Spirit of Christ inside of us if we have been born again, if we have repented from our sins and followed Jesus. We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we can engage with people the same way. Say, hey, your sins can be forgiven because Jesus is bigger. I've been in, in church gatherings where uh, it's, been, it's been said that, that a specific sin that I was struggling with was called out by name. And the person on the platform said, that just makes God want to throw up. That's not super helpful for someone that's struggling. And it gives power to sin that God, that, that sin doesn't have. God, think of the last time you threw up. Think of, think of the power that that flu bug had over you. It's not God. God's bigger than that. God can handle what you have, and he can fix it. He can mend it. He can put it back together and restore it. And this is what Jesus does in this man's life. He forgives him of his sins, and then he heals his body, and he sends him on his way. And so, as we, as we close this morning, it's my hope that we would have a renewed understanding of the authority of Jesus over sin. He's so much bigger. He's so much better. He's so much more powerful. And whatever it is that we think has us defeated, He is better still. So we, we come together every week and we, we take communion together. and We share the bread and the cup. And this is, Jesus says, this is a remembrance. He says, every time you do this, remember me. What are we remembering? We're remembering how he defeated sin, how he took it on, head on, and let it do its worst to him on the cross. And it even, it even looked in the end like it won. 
On Friday night, what we call Good Friday that we'll celebrate in a number of weeks, his disciples were distraught. They thought, man, they backed the wrong horse. They followed the wrong Messiah because sin is bigger than Jesus. But two days later, three days on the third day, Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death. And every week we remember that. We remember his body broken through the bread and his blood shed through the cup. And, and the other thing that ties in, one of the other things that ties in with, com- with communion is as a community, we take this meal together and we take it into our bodies it's not much, but it's nourishment. See, we, we take Jesus into our bodies and he nourishes us. His Holy Spirit lives inside of us, those of us that are his. And then we get the opportunity to be a little like Jesus and tell people the good news. Hey, your sins can be forgiven. My God is bigger than whatever's going on in your life, and He can rescue you. He is, he is mighty to save, the Scripture says. And so we're going we're gonna to sing a little bit more, remind each other through the words of these songs of who Jesus is and the power of our God, and, and you're welcome to share in the communion table while we worship. God, thank you for an opportunity to gather today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have, um, that you prompted Matthew to write his story down. God, that we have this record of what you did day to day. And God, I just, I pray that we would be comforted by your authority over sin. God, we see the effects of the brokenness of our world all over, every day. And the scariest thing is we see it inside our own selves. Remind us, remind us of how big you are. Remind us of how powerful you are. And give us humble hearts to seek you, to ask you. God, give us good friends that can help us to ask you. God, I just pray that you would continue to speak as we sing, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood. God, what seems so odd that you would come and you would die. God, this is the key to your victory over death. God, help us to just marvel at that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church 
at revelationcda.com.